0: Listening to the Magnet
1: Podcast. Welcome to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the inimitable Matt Alspa. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Lewis. We were just having a little bit of a theater chat, mm-hmm. kind of not really. Europe. You just recently finished working at the drama bookstore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was there for um, pretty much all of Obama. So a good, healthy eight years. A good
1: span of time. Mm-hmm. A good time. A good time to be around. A good time to be at that store.
0: Yes. Especially in New York City. Um, it was just such a magical place. It still is. But for me, it was just such an opportunity to meet some really interesting, bright people. Uh, really get myself kind of caught up in theater and just seeing the passion that could come out of it, and then I just had the opportunity to go see plays and to read. Reading and just staying afterwards was probably my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just the education that you could give yourself just by picking up all these different plays and just really sinking into it. You just you start to get it, especially in that store when you're sitting there afterwards. It's like sitting in the library when it's closed.
1: I don't think I could last a week in a job in a bookstore. I think I'd be fired immediately. Really? Yeah. I don't think I could resist the temptation to do that. Or I would just like sleep in the store after hours. I would be there all night. <laughs> well, I did
0: kind of live there for a three month period. Yeah. Um, so it's scary. It gets to be the three o'clock witching hour. Yeah. And the mannequins kind of feel like they're just about to climb down and start to pick up their own plays. and. Uh, it was
1: terrifying. It's a real night at the museum. Yeah. Yeah. Situation. Yeah.
0: I was, um, it was actually right when I started getting into improv, I had uh, a roommate who wanted to move out and I couldn't afford to live by myself and I didn't want to uh, go to this apartment with her. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go on a little couch hopping adventure. And um, I talked to my manager at the bookstore and he said, you could keep all your stuff here. Um, yeah. And just good luck finding places to sleep. Well, one month ended up becoming two months, and I started saving a lot of money in rent, started putting that into my improv uh, budget. And then I got to three months. I was like, oh, this is great. I'm not paying for rent. And uh, I'm having an adventure every night. Like every (laughs) night felt like I was going to a sleepover where I'd pack my uh, boxers and my toothbrush and my deodorant, and then I'd pretty much leave work and go to my friend's house. Uh, And all these people, because they're letting you stay over, they feel the need to entertain you. Mm -hmm. So I'm sleeping on their couch in their common room and they'll just kind of sit down and say, yeah, here, I got some pillows for you. Here's a blanket. Um, Let me know if you need anything. So what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just started realizing who was just so amazing that I worked with Mm -hmm. because I was staying with people. I was uh, doing stand up with at the time. I was staying with workers from the bookstore, workers from the comedy club I work at. And it was just such an experience to start to talk to these people in their Mm environments and not your shared space and kind of seeing, Oh, you have these books on your shelf. Oh, you have these posters on your wall and starting to just understand these people and really connect with them. Mm -hmm. And I started bridging some of my best friendships from that experience.
1: I, that would be something I would struggle with. I have a lifelong, uh, um, don't want to impose kind of monkey on my back. Yeah. So I have like, when I'm in, I'm very sensitive to being in someone else's private space Mm -hmm. and, uh, my brain kind of counterbalances that by trying to slow my biorhythms down as much as possible so that I am, like, people don't even register my presence in their space. <laughs> you just become one with the scenery. Ba- I, yeah, I basically get, like, super, super quiet and kind of blend into the background. So, it, it it's kind of, uh, I don't have access to all the critical parts of my brain where I can be a, a, a generous, mm. fun, loving, intelligible person. I just basically become very animal-like. I become, like, a small rodent. Ooh. No, it's not that bad.
0: No, it's not. It's not. I was just thinking about how I felt very similar, very similarly before I started doing this. I thought, I can't do this. This mm-hmm. is such an imposition to people. Um, but then I got used to it. And I started having fun and people were being so open to me that I think it kind of opened me up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I never did get over waking up on somebody's couch every morning. Mm-hmm. That was the toughest part. Just waking up and kind of going, oh, oh, where, where am I? Oh, yes. Right. Uh, Sean's house. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. Okay. How do I get to work? Great. I got it. And then moving on with my day. But there was something just very, um, very scary about waking up every day in a different place.
1: But one thing I'm going far afield on this one, Matt. Mm-hmm. But one thing that uh, is kind of cool about waking up in a in a strange person's home is you. when you wake up in your own bed, sometimes you kind of take for granted that the amazing thing that for a few moments… I have no idea who I am. And then I'm like watching my brain come back online. I'm watching like memories access again. And some part of my brain is just kind of reminding me of my circumstances. Mm-hmm. I've returned. Yeah. But when you're in like a strange house and you wake up disoriented, there is that like, you kind of are momentarily aware of the fact that you have no idea who you are mm-hmm. or no idea what's going on. I don't know. I found that rather exciting. It's kind of cool. Yeah. We we'll yeah. just disappear for a few hours and then come back again.
0: Yeah. I liked it. It was a
1: great experience for me. Uh, uh, So what, talk to me a little bit about your background that led up to your pursuit, so you're from Connecticut originally. Yeah. Waterbury. Uh, what brought you to the world of theater, comedy, New York City, the big apple mm-hmm. the city that never sleeps.
0: Right. Right. Um, well, I did a lot of theater in high school. Um, I was an athlete as I was a kid. But then once I started getting to high school, I just got real lazy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the fiery competition behind sports. Mm -hmm. And I started going to the plays and thought, well, that looks fun. Um, There's more girls there for Mm -hmm. sure than on a baseball team. Mm -hmm. And no one's yelling at you. Um, And I just started getting pulled in. I was always into stories. Like even as a kid, as a little kid, I could just watch the same movie. Like as a four-year-old, I was watching Ghostbusters over and over and over. And... There was just something so appealing to me. I think once I started watching theater and seeing that I could do that where I get to be a part in the story, mm. I get to be somebody's audience um, and you get to build something with people and you just have so much fun. And then I put that to the side because once you go to college, you get ready for the real world. You don't do theater. At least I didn't think I could do theater. Um, I thought I was good, but I didn't think it was something that I would pursue. And the first two years of college were fun, but then I started feeling this itch, and I started going to plays there. And what, I started, what, what college? Uh, Southern Connecticut State University. What were you studying? Media Studies. Okay. And um, I just never, and I never took theater classes there. I just auditioned. I auditioned for a student-directed one-acts, and then I got in. And it was like for the first two or three productions, I would just be person who comes on and act three delivers some line and that's it. Mm -hmm. But I just started having so much fun in the rehearsals, just playing around with people, doing impressions. And it was from those moments where some of the other actors in the um, department started seeing my characters that I would do or my form of comedy. And then I started getting bigger parts I never knew them in classes. I never would go to an audition and kill it. It was simply, I just got them by doing one line. And then in the rehearsals, they would kind of get to see me consistently. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my best friends at the time, uh, Brent, ended up moving to New York. And I went home for a year because, again, following the same pattern, oh, I can't do theater. I'm going to go home and get a real job. And I guess a real job was at that time uh, being a permanent substitute teacher. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. It was fun. But then he just ended up saying to me one day, I got a room that opened up um, in Washington Heights. It's at the top of Manhattan. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not really doing anything here. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll give it a shot. And I, like, about two weeks later, moved down to New York.
1: I want to back up for a second because I'm interested about the life of a permanent substitute teacher. Oh, I only know that experience from the other side of the table. I know mm-hmm. I know that from the stereotypical walk into class, see your substitute teacher and say, "Oh, good, free time."
0: Yeah, yeah, 40 minutes of fun.
1: Yeah. So, so walk me through what's a day in the life of a permanent substitute teacher.
0: Uh, it starts off very early with a phone call from somebody saying you got assigned this class at this school.
1: So you're just on call. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you don't get a phone call by like 7.45 a.m., then you're not working that day?
0: Yeah. Okay. You just have the day off and then you go back to sleep. Great. Um, But the first half of the year after I graduated, I was working at three different schools, uh, or I should say three different districts. So I would be anywhere from kindergarten to high school. That was insane. Going one day from uh, just following the lesson plan for a bunch of fourth graders uh, who are learning to read a story by themselves Mm -hmm. To the next day, we were doing chemistry assignments in a high school. And uh, it was so difficult because they never built a relationship with me mm-hmm. because I'm, again, like consistency is everything. And these people don't consistently see me. So when they see me, they just see, oh, substitute or Mr. Jennings isn't here today. So who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until the second half of that year where I got a job at my high school where I was filling in for the junior year English teacher. And then I started actually having relationships form with these kids. And I started seeing, oh, I could be a good teacher. I like doing this. It's a little bit of performing, especially when you know your audience. And when you start to get to be able to stand in front of them every single day, know who you could lean on in certain periods who are always going to laugh at your jokes mm-hmm. or who you could direct a whole point of what we're talking about, who you need to ignore if they have some type of comment. And, um, yeah, that was so much easier just showing up every day, knowing I'm going to be here from seven 30 to two 30. I don't have to wake up and kind of be in that in-between state of, Oh, where am I going to go? I don't even know. How do I get there? I got to go introduce myself to this principal. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm going to be the permanent sub, the board of education sent me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just so weird because again, certain schools run themselves totally different from another school. So you could go one day and you'll have a principal who will be very hands-on. Yes, I heard you are a substitute today. So nice to meet you. Let me know if you need anything. And then you'll have other ones who will just kind of look at you uh, and just say, yeah, yeah, just go, whatever. You know how to get there? Great. Bye. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that always that feeling of I'm not really belonging anywhere.
1: Yeah. That seems so crazy to me. It to Stepping into an environment like that where you're probably going to be facing hostility from the kids or at the very least total disrespect. hmm um, you don't know any of your colleagues, so you don't, have, like, you're, you're just, you're a, a filler. Yeah. And then to be handed a curriculum to, like, teach chemistry that day, like, what what exactly are you expected to do? Because I assume that you're not an expert in, you're a smart guy, no offense. Yeah, yeah. But I assume you're not an expert in fourth-grade psychology... <laughs> Preschool behavior, no, no. Uh, uh, organic chemistry. And I'm pretty trigonometry. Sure I'm, just,
0: I'm I'm smart, but yeah. there's no expert level in anything. Yeah. Um, so like,
1: what are you, you're handed a syllabus for the day? And well, you have all them kind of them will pretty much have,
0: it? yeah, exactly. They'll have, this was my assignment. Most of the time the teachers will know they're going to be out. Mm-hmm. So they essentially give you a lesson plan that you just need to make sure they follow through. Uh, make sure you get these papers from this person. It could be so specific as uh, Timmy in the third row, fourth seat normally will always say by the end i didn't have enough time Mm -hmm. so feel free to tell him at the very top you have plenty of time
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um you're just following through with orders and the few days where they don't have a lesson plan because it was an emergency they couldn't come in they got sick you're kind of told by at least i was um yeah like you could show them a movie Mm -hmm. or you could just have them treat it like a study hall Uh, I wasn't really expected to teach anything at that point when I was going to different schools. I was more or less expected to maintain a sense of order. Keep these kids in the room, keep them busy, and then when the bell leaves, make sure they know what they got to do for the next day.
1: Uh, That seems so unbelievably stressful to me.
0: It was. I hated it. (laughs) I would come home at 2.30 or 3 o'clock every day, and I remember sleeping on my mom's couch in the living room, for like three to four hours. Yeah. And then eating dinner and then just like wasting my night going to hang out with friends and then going, all right, well, I gotta go because I might get a call tomorrow at four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh it wasn't fun. Ugh.
1: Did you ever have an opportunity to sub a theater class? No.
0: But yeah. I found out originally when I left college, I applied for a teaching job at my high school and they said, well, no, um, you're great. We loved having you here, but you don't have a It was a private school I went to. Mm -hmm. So I had no classes as an educator. And they said, well, you know, maybe halfway through the season, we could reach out to you um, if somebody gets really sick or there is this one teacher who's uh, pregnant. So maybe when she goes on maternity leave, you could take her spot, which I ultimately did. Mm -hmm. But um, it wasn't until after I served as the permanent English teacher when she was gone where at the end of the school year when I decided I'm going to New York, the very next day, the teacher said, we want to give you her position because she says she's not so interested o- about o- taking always it. Always how that goes. And we want you to restart our theater program. Again. Always
1: how that goes. So I was,
0: I was in this position where I thought, wow, okay, now I'm getting what I want once I decide to leave, but I don't think I want it. Yeah. And I remember when I told some of the older teachers I was going to move to New York, they're like, that's the right decision.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. even if whatever you do doesn't work out, you know what the outcome is if you stay here Mm -hmm. and you're not going to get paid much on top of it. Um, so yeah, this was definitely more of the adventure to take.
1: Mm -hmm. Any
0: regrets so far? Um, no, no. I mean, not regrets. There's just times where I go, just that normalcy of having one thing that you go to every single day where you could just kind of, (laughs) I hate to say it's about the education system where, but you could just like unplug Mm -hmm. and just kind of sit there and say, all right, here's your assignment. Do it. um, But the one thing that I missed out on a little bit, I think I'm gaining it a little bit more now by directing is starting to see when you're really helping people Mm -hmm. and just how much that just makes you feel like you're making a positive difference, no matter how small. And so much for me about my performing has been just filling up my own ego. Um, But like directing, even helping kids when we were reading um, like American romanticism, poetry, starting to see that they could like kind of get what you're trying to deliver for them. Yeah. Just seeing that light go off is the same thing as if I'm working with an actor and a sketch and then they understand like, Oh yeah, here's how I could play the joke. And it's still their discovery, but just seeing like, ah, like that's just such a much more fulfilled sense of, I'm working in the arts.
1: Yeah. There's something uh, that gets to be kind of hollow about like that ego gratification. Yeah. It, you, you get a certain amount of, of you feel like, you know, your self-esteem is pretty high about being, being good at this, but it, but it, it starts to kind of like, not, it becomes like empty after a while. It's like empty calories. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh And not to sound cliche, but like, you got to give back, man. Yeah, it, you're really like kind of not like fully operational until you're like helping other people have their experiences too. It it the, uh, uh, the 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 bread of decency is passed between man and man. Yeah, said Martin Buber once somewhere. <laughs> but it, it is like you got to share what you know with people and help people with it. I I always like in my heart of hearts. I think there's still like a pretty big part of me that like I'm uh, naturally like a community theater director or like a high school theater teacher stuck Mm -hmm. in the body of an improv guy in New York City. Mm -hmm. That like I remember like discovering the theater department in junior high school and just like what a special place that was. Yeah, for so many reasons, it's kind of like so many things come into perspective for you in that environment you find that you're smarter and funnier and sharper than you ever thought you were. You're making people laugh, mm-hmm. but it also like, there's something about like that, like pocket of being in, in like a school theater that like feels like you're getting the real deal somehow. It's interesting mm-hmm. how much hostility there is when it comes to like education budgets. How so, like theater and music programs are always the first to go. Always, always. And there's like a twisted psychology to that because to me I always had the feeling that like this is where I'm actually learning the valuable important stuff Mm -hmm. this is where all of the other things that I'm learning get integrated into a whole Mm -hmm. as impractical as it sounds and how and as much as I know that we were just putting on a Christmas carol but it was like oh I feel like the pressure is off for me to have to demonstrate what I'm learning yeah and because that pressure is off and because I'm having to learn how to relate to other people and I'm gonna I have to rely on my wits Mm -hmm. to make this scene. Funny for me, I was always putting stuff to make stuff funnier. Mm-hmm. All this other shit that I'm learning, suddenly I'm able to rely on and pull out. I'm like watching my brain come online mm-hmm. and and organize itself in a way where I can like okay, do the task that I have to do right now. Yeah. So there seems to be like a, almost, I don't know, not to sound like a nut about it, but like it's almost like the other subjects that you learn in school are very left brain. Mm -hmm. subjects and then theater is a very like holistic right brain subject and it does sort of seem like left brain thinking consistently just wants to eradicate right brain thinking yeah so let's cut theater to pro theater programs nationwide
0: and one of the best things that i've learned from the theater um is just the group process Mm -hmm. and collaboration and seeing that different people could specialize in different aspects of the same thing um like you will have the kids who get involved with the tech stuff. Then you have the kids who will get involved with costumes. And then you start to realize, well, I'm the person Mm -hmm. who's brave enough to stand on a stage and deliver lines. Those kids aren't, but what they do for this show helps me so much and helps the show. And it's not just what's my role, but seeing all these different elements that come together through the group. Mm -hmm. And then there's nothing better than the cast parties. I mean, I remember in high school, it was just always this fun celebration of just we did it. Mm-hmm. We did it. Whether it was just going <laughs> going to the pizza hut or something afterwards and just feeling like who cares where we are, like we're celebrating. We mm-hmm. just spent three months putting up Oklahoma. Right. Or guys and dolls. And now we all tonight, can just be we, fun. we are the
1: champions of Perkins. Tonight. Yes.
0: Yes. And then we get to do it again tomorrow yeah. and then next weekend. And uh it's just it was a ball.
1: I love all that goofy shit, all that like the everyone's circling up right before the first show and getting like the inspirational speech from the, from the director and mm-hmm. everyone's nerves are all frayed. And there's always like the one person who's just like been freaking out all week long and love all that goofy shit. It's just like the, the, the flavor of all that stuff was like so good. I, and also like you feel like you're in like a special bubble you know, you're at school after hours when other people aren't hanging around, Mm -hmm. you're forming bonds with kids who aren't normally in your class and you're making other people laugh. And you're like, there's almost something where it's like, you're stepping out of your assigned, your role within the school. Mm -hmm. You step out of that and you're kind of like an unformed um, entity. You know what I mean? Like I just, I remember like, Really loving that feeling of like, oh, our social roles. These are these are kids. We're not in the same classes. We don't hang out together. Um, but then when you get to like after hours, all that shit drops. And now we're like making each other laugh and, and yeah. sharing Dr. Pepper or whatever the fuck we were drinking. Yeah. It's a great feeling. High school theater, man. Yeah.
0: And you separate yourself from just, oh, I'm a student. Yeah. To, oh, these are my interests as an individual. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really special for me.
1: I'm going to totally get this wrong because I, this is secondhand information, but Megan was just ex- telling me about an article she was reading, I think in the New Yorker, about Finland as the first country that's beginning to officially do away with subjects in school. Oh, congrats, Finland. Congrats, Finland. Uh, they're slowly, apparently, and again, this is all secondhand, so I could be getting this totally wrong. So my apologies to all of our, our Finnish uh, fans out there if I'm misrepresenting your beautiful country apparently they're eradicating the idea of there being individual subjects. And instead students can choose like events that they're interested in. Mm. And then they will be organized in small groups to study those events from the perspective of historical significance, mathematical probability, the science behind the psychology behind it, like whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it's this more holistic bringing all the subjects to bear as we Explore the significance of this event on our lives. Interesting. As opposed to breaking everything up artificially into these different subjects that seem to not relate to each other and Mm -hmm. and kind of have to learn by rote and parrot back by rote and then have no sense of the integrated whole of all of it. Right. I dig that, man.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's something so defeating about feeling as if, okay, you have six classes that are totally separate from themselves and you start to get a measurement of what you're good at and what you're bad at. Mm-hmm. But I think you're supposed to feel this feeling that you're supposed to be good at everything, mm-hmm. even though that they are very blocked out from each other and really from your day-to-day life. Um, and I really like that approach of building a team and looking at something and studying it mm-hmm. rather than studying the lesson plan for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very scary. I was just, I just had a memory of, when I would sub at one of the high schools that had a lot of funding, they were starting to do a lot more group projects. And I just found it so much more interesting though, bringing it back to again, all these different kids who are forced to work on this thing collectively. Mm-hmm. And of course they're kids who weren't used to it. So one of the kids who was probably the smartest, one of the bunch realized who was going to be the one most anxious to do the work and be like, all right, you, you can take care of that. Brilliant. Yeah. Like, Oh, that's the leader. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Instead of, I mean, I remember with school just being so defeated if I couldn't get something. Mm-hmm. Just feeling like that feeling of sitting alone at your desk with your head down mm-hmm. and just feeling like you are one of everybody, but everybody's so separated by their rows mm-hmm. and their desk. And I couldn't help but to look over at one person see their pencil flying down the sheet and me just kind of still doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo, <laughs> trying to figure out what's going to be my best bet and pulling my hair out. Just that feeling of being alone.
1: Well, I, and for me, the, the big memory of school is boredom and fear. Mm. And it's just feeling really bored and then constantly feeling like at any point you can be punished for something. Yeah. Getting it wrong, not doing the work. And it comes at a time in your life where you're most curious just about other people at that point. Mm. you're You're developing an interest in whoever you're developing an interest in. Your social life is expanding. You're getting a new set of friends. I mean, all of that equipment is coming online. Uh, um, And at the moment where you're most interested in other people, you're now being put in these like rows and files and forced to apply your mind on something that you don't care about Mm -hmm. that has no relevance to your life whatsoever Mm -hmm. that you sense is just about killing time. Mm -hmm. So like to integrate that and use the force of like what these kids' minds are naturally doing, which is wanting to lock minds with other kids your same age and wanting to learn how you think about stuff and wanting to learn what makes you tick and all that stuff. Yeah. Makes sense to me, man. And that's uh, like to relate it back to theater. I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed so much about getting to do theater stuff in junior high school and high school is like the fact that it's a shared experience. Yeah. The fact that you're learning to do it, you're investigating the event of this particular play and figuring it out, but you're learning it by making these other kids who are your age laugh Mm -hmm. and, and learning it by like, pooling your knowledge together of like the shit that you know it's just like you learn so much more from each other yeah it just seems like a healthier way to learn
0: I agree in fact all the times where I probably have gotten my most depressed in life or downtrodden about anything was when I wasn't doing theater Mm -hmm. in one form or another when I stopped and I said well now it's time for me to grow up Mm -hmm. and I got to figure out what I'm going to do for a career Mm -hmm. it was at those moments where I started realizing that I was missing something And even though the career aim behind this could be very daunting, there's just something so powerful and so potent. And for me, just so fulfilling about being with other people and getting my best out and hopefully getting their best out. And then in the, the product of all that is that people get to come to a dark room, Mm -hmm. sit in chairs and forget who they are, hopefully for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever, and just enjoy Mm -hmm. whatever's on the stage. Like Mm -hmm. that's so I think about that a lot and how powerful that is of that audience performer dynamic and the unconscious agreements we make to each other. When you decide you're going to be the one who steps on stage or you're going to be the one who sits in the audience Mm -hmm. and just how much it separates you from whatever you're dealing with that day.
1: I've always loved, I much preferred the excitement of being an audience member to the excitement of being a performer always i love the for me it's always been the thrill of like stepping into that room and having that excitement of the curtain about to go up and and Mm -hmm. the experience you're going to have and i think for me it's always been this thing of like i want to be part of the reason why this is happening Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of like to fulfill this urge to be to see it Mm -hmm. i think i've always kind of identified more with the audience than with the performer Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I never realized that before. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so... Actually, no, not so. I want to explore this idea because this is interesting. Yeah. ever read uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McLeod? No. Scott McLeod? Great book. Okay. Highly recommend it. Um, I just read a a part of it where he was talking about the ubiquity of, um, like, cartooning cartoon faces, simplifying a human face. And his argument is when you see a a representational drawing of a human face, that's very realistic versus a face that's extremely simplified, almost like a, like a, like a two dots on a line for a, for a happy face or smiley face. Psychologically, your tendency is to recognize the very realistic face as belonging to someone else. You're looking at a face that's outside of you. Mm looking at the abstracted cartoonified version feels closer to the way that you sense your own face. So even as I'm looking at you right now, I have a very clear image of your face, but I'm always aware of what my face is doing, but always in a very like simplified abstract way. So when you see a cartoon of a human face, you tend to identify with it. Thus his argument Kids are very entertained by comics and cartoons, partly because it gives them the ability to enter into the cartoon. Emotionally, they get to identify with these characters, et cetera. Yeah. And uh he talks in the book too about how like our brain is hardwired in a way to do that to uh, um, uh kind of integrate the tools that we're using in any particular moment and sort of extend a sense of our own identity to those tools identify with those tools, make them an extension of ourselves. So like the example he gives is like when you're driving a car, you have a sense of the entire car. Like your sense of personal identity expands to include the entire car. And without realizing it, um, your like consciousness is filling the car. You know where mm-hmm. the car is on the road at any given time. Right. If someone hits your car, you say, that son of a bitch hit me. Yeah, yeah. Right? So to relate this to what we're talking about. I think that there's something incredibly exciting in my mind about stepping into a dark theater where the agreement that you're making when you're sitting in the dark is you're kind of dissolving the boundaries of your own narrative Mm -hmm. and your awareness as an audience member kind of opens up. The periphery opens up in that darkness to identify with this story that's in front of you and to have that experience of kind of collectively we're all becoming like one entity and all – living out the story that's in front of us. It's this beautiful, incredible, magical act Yeah, that then gives us the closest thing that we can to like reading each other's minds or like intuiting each other's emotional lives. I'm not saying anything new with any of this. I just- No, but I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I
0: mean, one thing that I've realized uh, more and more is that um, as a performer, I don't have to do nearly as much as I think. Right. And the audience does most of the lifting. Right. It's just, I think- for me to give it an emotion or a motivation or to honor their logic. And hopefully that's where the group comes in and holds everybody accountable to whatever you guys are doing so that the audience will stay involved. I mean, for the most part, again, like nothing that I'm saying right now is going to be groundbreaking, but just realizations I have is that if you do a sketch or you have a play where one of your characters is a criminal and the audience realizes that in the first five seconds, they're going to fully believe that you are a criminal until you give them enough evidence to prove, Oh no, he's an actor Mm -hmm. portraying a criminal. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like the less you do, like just let the audience do the heavy lifting Mm -hmm. and then just have fun with knowing, Oh, this is our dynamic. Okay. So like, how do I feed you information, but still honor what I'm doing and be present doing it? Um, Because it's just anytime I've tried to put on a full show, It's just been like, for me, for the audience, you could tell when it feels like I'm doing a show fully aware of the audience themselves and my role with them. It just feels so much more like we're doing it. It's fun. I'm reacting off of you. You're reacting off of me. And we just have this fun little relationship that we're
1: bringing to life. When you see an actor that's doing what you're describing. Mm -hmm. It's like being on a date with someone who you just sense that they're working super hard to prove to you what a great time they're having on this date. Oh, uh, yeah. The, it, it, it's so dis, disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's totally true. Like it, When you're acting it's not so much about creating the event as it is like creating the perception of this event in the mind of the audience Mm. and thinking about that of really you're just creating something for them to identify with. You want the character, the character is like halfway between your, your actions and the audience's perception of you. Mm -hmm. So the less reason you give them to doubt anything that you're doing, the better off you are. I love that sense of lightness of touch to what you're doing. Yeah. I love that sense of just don't give people a reason not to believe you Mm -hmm. act less.
0: Yeah. Like I heard this quote from, uh, some actor who was working with Jack Nicholson and they said the best acting advice I ever got was from Jack Nicholson. And it was in a movie, one of the movies where he was a old rancher and the actor was trying to be a cowboy mm-hmm. and Nicholson said to him, um, just let the costume be a cowboy. Mm-hmm. And he said, after that, he just started putting so much more of an emphasis on trying to have a realistic looking wardrobe and really being specific so that he could just be himself mm-hmm. and the audience could see through his makeup, through his costume that he was in fact a cowboy or a fireman or whatever occupation he may have. But I just thought, Oh my goodness, that is just so brilliant. Like let other people or other things help you fill in the picture. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to show you're the artist. Um, you don't have to show that you could, put down all the paint and all the drawings and everything within the frame so that they will applaud you throughout. Like, oh, you're great. Let's uh, let the picture fill in with other people all doing their little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard that story too. That's uh, Harry Dean Stanton, I think. Yeah. That's it. Um, Who's one of my favorite actors and has the, Harry Dean Stanton has this like magnetic draw to him. You mm-hmm. are kind of like fascinated by him partly because he just doesn't show you a hell of a lot. Yeah, so you're like always kind of curious about like what else is going on inside. It also helps that he has a face that looks like it's been around the block three or four times. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I I love that too. And you know, it's interesting. I forget where I read this, but the idea that an actor in a in a scripted show has to work a little harder than an actor in an improv show um, at the very top of the show. At the beginning of a scripted show, you you have to get the audience to believe you first. Uh, and then once they're like invested into it, like the show is off and running, mm-hmm. you have to work less hard in an improv show to get the audience to believe you. They're predisposed to believe anything that you say or do in an mm. improv show. And I happen to think that this is true. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true because of the nature of a stage set. The stage set itself has this kind of like artificial reality to it. And then the actors come on out and they're speaking a little louder and a little bigger to fill the the theater which is generally larger than an improv theater Mm -hmm. and so everything about that it starts with this feeling like blurring the line between unreality and reality Mm -hmm. and the actors actually have to kind of seduce you into understanding their motivations for things until like 10 minutes into the show you start to kind of dig it Yeah. whereas in an improv show because of the intimacy of the theater and because the entire set is in the imagination of the audience if you do just enough to suggest that set in their mind And then you do no more than that, and you don't overact, and you just kind of like hold your moment. You let it slowly begin to just, they see the picture in their imagination, Mm -hmm. and all you got to do is stand there and do nothing, and they'll see it all fill in around you, and they believe every word that comes out of your mouth. Yeah. Until you do something insincerely that bursts that bubble. Yeah. Unless your goal is, and I'm not shitting on this goal, unless your goal is to just be as funny as possible, in which case, fuck that, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Do funny stuff. But if that's not your goal, if you're looking at it from like a sl- more of like a theatrical perspective, I like that thing that in the world of improv you you, you actually have to do a little bit less. You got to do mm-hmm. what, what you do has to count and it has to be done sincerely, but it's basically once you touch the glass of beer or once you touch the windowsill, let that windowsill do the acting for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just like something as simple as um like the space between actors. Mm-hmm. If two actors find themselves sitting totally opposite end of the stage they could realize instantaneously oh there's a reason that there's this distance between us Mm -hmm. like where could we be and then you just give one detail and then you hear the whole audience just "Uh oh uh, yeah Yeah. okay yeah you're two guys sitting in a lobby waiting for uh two different dates oh of course like that scenario doesn't make sense but watching you guys do it right now i believe what you're doing and uh yeah it's really a beautiful thing when you just feel the audience because you feel it you just know when they're with you, and you mm-hmm. know when they're not, and you know when they believe what you're doing because
1: you believe what you're doing. All right. So now you're living on the top of Manhattan. You've <laughs> given up. You've given up your time as a permanent substitute teacher. You're right. going to make your business to to do theater stuff. Mm-hmm. How do we get from there to the world of improv and sketch comedy?
0: Um, I started getting into stand up because I was I liked the idea of writing material. And I thought, well, this is the best way you get to perform stuff you write. And I did that for about a year and a half. And I just didn't like it. But I had a lot of friends who were doing stand-up and taking improv classes. And then I thought, okay, I'll take it. And I started realizing as I was doing it, all the actors or comedians that I really liked had a strong background in improv. And I started thinking, okay, maybe this is for me. And I started getting more into it, taking classes at the magnet, taking classes at the pit UCB, doing a little bit of short form, doing all the practice groups that this is what I love. This collaboration, this you're with a team, here's your team. You're going to do a show. You're stepping on a stage and you're doing a long form and you get to show off your funny, but you get to treat it seriously as well. Um, And I just was just so pulled into it. And then from there I started getting into sketch Simply because I realized, oh, I really like working off a of text. I like what improv has taught me. And it's the acting training that I never really got. because mm-hmm. I just always kind of would audition somehow get in, but I never took classes in acting. These improv was my acting classes. And then when I started getting into sketch, I realized it's just all the same principles, all the same feelings. You just are building up to one show over three weeks or a month. It's about the same length of time, the same number of people. And you just have this text that you're all treating as, okay, this is our script. Let's honor it. Let's build it up. Let's see what moments we could find. And for me, that's where it kind of became a marriage of what drew me to stand up and then what really pulled me into improv. Hmm. And I just love, love working off of a script. I love doing improv and it's fun, but I've had so many times where, I wasn't with a team that I gelled with or they didn't gel with me. And I felt like, Oh God, this is just, I just don't feel right. I feel in my head.
1: This would be so good if the other person would just be a little different right now.
0: Yeah. 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 Whereas like with a sketch, even if I've had teams or been on teams where it wasn't working good, it always felt like, okay, well, we know where step one is. Mm -hmm. Like we could always have our, let's touch home base and see what we could fix. Um, That was very, very appealing to me, just having something that you could always go back to to try to work up from there.
1: What, um, I want to break sketch down into three parts and hear your wisdom on these three parts. If you were to give an inspirational talk to someone about to do a sketch show and they were freaking out Mm -hmm. from the experiences that you've had, what should a person keep in mind as a sketch writer? What should a person keep in mind as a sketch actor? And what should a person keep in mind as they're mounting a sketch show and they want to do a good solid sketch show?
0: Um, hmm. Well, as a writer, I would say simplicity. Um, I tend to find that while I value so much a writer who has their own voice, and I would never want to give that away, ultimately this is collaboration. So the simpler you are as you give it to the next person, the more they have a chance to add something to your initial idea. Hmm. And sometimes I've seen really funny stuff not work just because people couldn't put their teeth around it. They couldn't get into it. They couldn't give it anything because it felt so um, defensive. It felt as if that this writer had such a good idea, but it only could be done if it was this one way. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing sketch with a bunch of people who you essentially get put on a team with, it's hard to get your vision solely as is up. Mm. Um, I think that definitely changes once you start to pick who you want to write with. But I would just always say it helps just to be simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard recently, if your sketch doesn't have to be five pages, it probably doesn't have to be four. So simple to the point, Claire. Uh, as an actor, I would just say confidence. No matter what you're doing, no matter how stupid it is, your confidence sells it. You're a salesman. You have to be up there and you have to feel good about what you're doing. If you're hesitant or if you're trying to get the joke, it's just going to kind of be like a waiter telling you what the specials are today. They're hesitant. They're like, yeah, um, looking around the room, scratching their cheek. You're not going to want that. You're not going to want whatever they're going to try to get you to get. Mm-hmm. You got to be confident um, because if you're confident, that buys you so much of a license with the audience. You get so much credit They'll but, be- pulled into your humor and what you're doing even if the sketch isn't that good i mean confidence just soars mm-hmm. um like i look at kate mckinnon on snl and she could just do the simplest thing so confidently that i could just sit there like comedy you love mm-hmm. ah, just watch whatever she does she could just pick up a bottle of water and how she does it because she's so confident and what she wants to do with it i'm sold yeah um and putting up a show i would definitely say deadlines you got to give yourself deadlines so you know, okay, like step-by-step, step, what are we tackling next? Um, because it's just a series of we got to get this part done. Now we got to get these rewrites. Now you got to choose a show. Now you got to cast it. If you're just trying to tackle that when it comes to you, there's always going to be something coming to you. So I think anticipating your hurdles, uh, the the parts of the show that you have to do, you just got to kind of break up as much as possible and kind of get it going and not just for yourself but for your team i'm a firm believer that when you're working with a team you need to honor their time and you need to honor their commitment and if you're just taking things as they come it's hard to honor people Mm -hmm. because you just kind of then start to throw things at them and expect them to get it and most of the time they will but i firmly believe that in order to set somebody else up to do something good you really got to honor your word so if you're saying like i really try my best to be good with deadlines so if i say to my team get me your rewrites by 11 p.m i expect them by 11 p.m Um, and if something happens with them along the way where they can't get it i'm normally understanding as long as they reach out but if i tell them by wednesday 5 p.m i'll have your show i'm doing everything i could to make sure that by wednesday 5 p.m the latest i give them their show Mm -hmm. because it's trust i want them to trust me and i want to trust them and just honoring your deadlines and making sure that slowly this whole,
1: this whole thing will build itself up. Uh, writer, performer, director, do you have a preference?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, what's today? Yeah. Yesterday, was probably writing. Today, it's performing. Tomorrow, directing. That um, seems pretty fair. Yeah. I, I really, right now, I'm enjoying directing. Because mm. I think I've been at this point where I feel like I'm getting better as a performer and better as a writer. Um, but for me, again, it just feels like that high where when you do something, that's your sketch that you wrote or you perform in somebody else's sketch and you get that laugh, ah, it just feels great. Mm -hmm. And that audience laughs at what you did. But then normally by the next morning, I'm like, all right, yeah, back to my life. Mm -hmm. Like, what do I got to do today? Uh, When I'm directing, even if something doesn't go good, I just can't help but to feel like this was a success. Like we mounted a show. Um, and may not have gotten an A but I can't help, but to look at the obstacles that we might've had along the way. This person saying they didn't feel comfortable playing this role, working around it. This person saying that they had a really hard time coming up with third beats, helping them work with it. I really take so much pride in the work that I do with people when I'm directing. And that really doesn't fade away.
1: You, to change topics dramatically, Mm -hmm. uh, have also been working as a New York City tour guide. Is that correct? Yeah. So normally at this part of the interview, we play a round of, what are we calling it, Evan? Getting to know each other? Monologue hotspot? I don't know. I change it every time. It's getting to know each other. Cool. But I want to avoid getting to know each other. And instead of doing a two-person monologue hotspot for this very special episode of the podcast, Matt Alspa, Mm -hmm. please share with me some interesting tidbits of New York history.
0: Hmm. Um, well, I'm going to sadly tell you, I don't know much about Staten Island. That's okay. Nobody Uh,
1: does.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Not a lot of tourists want to go there, so I'm not required to learn about it.
1: Yeah. That's part of its charm is it's, uh, uh, non-identifiable for anybody. Right. Right. Um, hmm. Rick Andrews pointed out to me, the only identifiable things about Staten Island are, uh, uh, the Arizona Bridge and the Staten Island Ferry. So the only identifiable thing about the island are ways to get off the island.
0: Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, I would probably say one of the most interesting things about New York history that most people are aware of but don't grasp is the influence of the Dutch hmm. when this was the Dutch West Trading Post from I believe it was 1625 to 1667 and how so much of their influence is still in New York today. The idea of, We don't really care where you're from. Um, As long as you want to come here and work and make money, welcome aboard. This is New Amsterdam. Um, It's a rough town. There's no major church here that you have to pledge yourself to. The church is commerce. So if you want to come here and work, there's a place for you. And I find that totally different than the starts of, say, Boston or Philadelphia, two other major eastern seaboard cities, particularly Boston. I mean, me being a New Englander. Just the overall presence of religion, Catholicism, is everywhere. And you can't escape that. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in New York, yeah, there's Catholics, sure, but I don't feel that overarching influence like I do with this idea of New York never sleeps money. Everybody's working at any hour of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's a really fascinating book about that called The Island at the Center of the World. And it really gets into so much of that early New York character given by the Dutch. And then uh, the English having, I believe, 40 different war boats pointing to Fort Amsterdam saying, you will give us the island or we shall destroy it and then build our own. And Peter Stuyvesant wanting to fight because he was so loyal to the Dutch and saying, well, then fight, we shall fight. And everyone was saying, no, we don't care about the Dutch. We just want to work. We'll work for them. We'll work for you, whatever. Give them the island. Uh, Even Stuyvesant's son was saying like,
1: give it up, dad. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a
0: fight you want to do.
1: A proud tradition. Yes. Yes. People will request like specialized tours from you. Yeah. Yeah. What's like the most unusual tour you've had to give or, um, or the most curious to you?
0: The most unusual one that I've had to do, and I've had to do it a couple of times and it's different every time based on what they want, is uh, they'll book with me a four to eight hour private car tour they just want to be driven around. I don't drive. They get another driver. And I'm just the navigator slash tour guide slash historian pointing things out along the way. I mean, to me, I think that's great because you really get to see the scale of the city, but you really don't get any true history because as soon as you're talking about the New York Times building, oh, yeah, and uh, now here is 7th Avenue, Fashion Avenue. This used to be the fashion district, and it still has that idea. Now we are coming up to Macy's. Macy's, you just you're giving little snippets about everything. Mm. Um, I like doing the walking tours because you really could get into a story of something. Maybe it's because I get to perform a little too. Mm. But uh,
1: Do you do like voices and stuff, characters?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, uh, I typically do this uh, Brooklyn Bridge Dumbo tour mm. and the whole story of William Boss Tweed. And most of the people who sent for this tour are from Europe. Mm. And most of them don't speak English. They have somebody translating. So as I'm telling them, whole story, I will see the son leaning over to the mother speaking in Spanish, translating, but still looking at me to process everything. And when I would talk about Boss Tweed always making all these promises and his big motivation was money, I would say, you know, he was kind of like New York's 1868 Donald Trump. And then I would say, oh, I'll build a bridge and it'll be great. I'll make Jersey pay for it. And then everybody would just start to laugh and laugh. And then I did that joke the day after the election and all these Europeans just yeah, they're
1: not laughing anymore. No, they
0: just shook their head like that. Is not a funny joke, sir. You're gonna have
1: to. You're gonna have to find a new angle on Boss Tweet, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll just stick with you as the the boss. You might want to give it. Boss
1: Tweet a little rest for the next couple of years. Yeah, you, they don't need to know that. Part I don't of the think story. we're emotionally ready for Boss Tweet just yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, this is the part of the interview where we I have you improvise a scene opposite a jar of pickles. Ooh. We normally call this a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. Okay. In fact, here is the jar of pickles, but I don't have it in me this week after the election. This is our first recorded podcast after the election. I just don't have it in me to hear a very serious scene Okay. opposite a jar of pickles. I just, I, I can't deal with it right now. So instead I'm going to ask you to improvise a very kind scene opposite a jar of pickles. Okay. What I'm going to do, Matt, is I'm going to give you a situation. This is going to be a simpler situation than I usually give for these. And you're just going to do your best to improvise that situation for like a minute With this jar of pickles. The only rule is that when you refer to the jar of pickles, you refer to it as jar of pickles as if that's its proper name. Okay. So Matt, two of these pickles have just gotten married to each other. The jar itself represents the wedding ceremony. It's the event which contains them. You are the best man and you are giving kind words of well wishes and God's blessing to the new married couple. For the next 60 seconds, Matt Alspaugh improvising a very kind scene opposite a Jar of Pickles.
0: Jar of Pickles? Jar of Pickles? Uh, Family of Jar of Pickles, I'm very honored to be here. I look at how all of you come together and I realize that you're a tight-knit group, uh, both sides. And as I see you here, I would just like to say to you that as you move on in the future as One by one, it may seem like you're fading away from each other, disappearing. You will always have your bond. You will always have your blood. And you will always have your friendships. Jar of pickles, I just want you to know that no matter how tough things get, you could go anywhere. If somebody wanted to put you on a peanut butter sandwich, you belong on a peanut butter sandwich, no matter how much convention says you do not. And jar of pickles, if you were to be put Inside an alcoholic beverage. While some people might say, that's gross. Don't listen to them, jar of pickles. You belong anywhere you want, inside this jar or outside this jar. I love you, jar of pickles. I love all of you, jar of pickles.
1: And that was a very moving, very kind (laughs) scene, improvised opposite a jar of pickles. Very chilling as well, acknowledging that as these pickles are looking around, many of them are just disappearing, being put on sandwiches, being being devoured.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, my first favorite sandwich was a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Ah,
1: yeah. I could see where that would be good. Yeah. Wouldn't that be chilling if you were at a real wedding <laughs> with real human beings and the best man speech included as we look around this room? I see many fading people. Many of these people will be gone very soon. Yeah, I realize one, one by one. saying that. This uh, one, is not one by kindness. One. <laughs> this is just the bleak
0: reality. Who let this guy be the best friend? Oh, he's the guy from college.
1: Each of us uh, in our turn is facing our own mortal end, but at least the two of you can hold each other's hands and pretend like a few moments like uh, the inevitable is not coming. Anyway, all the best to you and yours. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> Evan, I think that this was our best, very kind scene improvised opposite of Jar Pickles. Yeah, oh. I think Evan can agree uh fabulous matt alspa plug a little bit why don't you what do you have coming up dinosaur jones
0: dinosaur jones you have a show coming
1: up in december a yes. one person show
0: yes i'm really excited about that it's called the high low character show mm-hmm. it is high status individuals with low self-esteem love it so basically think of a bunch of various michael scotts great In different occupations trying to gain control great yeah i'm really excited about that when is that coming up it is Monday, December 19th
1: at nine o'clock, and it's right after the sketch teams. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Great. Please come check that out, friends. Anything else I care to plug?
0: Um, no, no. You're great. If you are listening to this and have not taken a class with Lewis, you need to.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I appreciate everything you do. You're great, too, Matt, and I appreciate everything you do as well. Thanks, man. Evan, you're great, too. Evan, you are wonderful. I'm killing it. And those of you listening to this podcast, I just want to tell you something. Things are a little bit bleak right now. I know a lot of us are feeling very sad, but I want you to know something. You listening to this right now are a very special person. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know Mm -hmm. I sound like I'm being sarcastic, but I don't. You are as unique as a snowflake. There has never been a person exactly like you to ever walk this earth before. There will never be another one like you. You have a deep and important role on this planet. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to your friends. You're a good person. And you know what? You're doing okay, friend. I'm happy that I know you. And if I don't know you, come and say hi sometime. I'd like to get to know you. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Alspaugh, Thanks for being here, Matt. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening. A couple of other thank yous, of course, to our producer and engineer, Evan Ford-Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, to all of the good, kind people here in New York City, the city that never sleeps, the Big Apple. We owe it all to the Dutch. Money is our God.
0: (laughs) All hail Dutch. All hail Dutch. (laughs) And
1: hey, a little trivia for you. Stetten Island comes from General Stetten. He was a Dutch person. That's all I know about him. But he was cool enough to have an island named after him. Mm. See? I'm um, um, schooling everyone on some good old-fashioned Staten Island history. Hey, visit Staten Island while you're out there. Go to Snug Harbor uh, <laughs> uh, Cultural Center, beautiful garden. You can visit the Chinese Scholar Garden. Tell them I sent you. They have no idea who I am, and they will give you no discount whatsoever. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, thank you once again to Matt Alspa. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theatre for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.